I'm here with G. Edward Griffin. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I wanted to ask you first off about the viral video that's been going off on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where you're talking about, I actually bought it and I think I got about a hundred people to buy it too because of you, Color Communism and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. So can you tell me about that video, why you recorded it and just in general? As early as 1928, the communists declared that the racial differences among our people constituted the weakest and most vulnerable point in our social fabric. By constantly probing and straining at this one spot, they calculated that eventually the cloth could be torn apart and that Americans could be divided, weakened, and perhaps even set against each other in open combat. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. Here is a book that I think ought to be in every home library. It's entitled Color, Communism, and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. He joined the party as a young man because he honestly believed that the communists were trying to improve the conditions of his people. He was a dedicated communist, and eventually he rose to one of the highest ranks. But after many years, he discovered that instead they were merely planning to use his people in a bloody revolution to destroy America. And when he woke up to this, he dropped out of the party and devoted the rest of his life trying to alert his fellow citizens of all races to the true nature of the Communist Party as he knew it to be from the inside. Manning oh, yeah. I hope these lawnmowers that just showed up outside my door aren't going to wreck this. But uh, yeah, it's been many years since I thought about the, the pamphlet, Color Communism and Common Sense uh, by Manning Johnson. Manning Johnson was quite a guy. He's, a, he's a, a black fellow, an idealistic fellow that got sort of wrapped up in the Communist Party and then broke away from it when he found out what was really going on. And, you know, that takes a lot of courage when you join a group like that where they demand, uh, really demand obedience and loyalty as kind of like the mafia. It's not so easy to get in, but it's even harder to get out, I, I'm told. So anyway, uh, yeah, that takes me way back to the, uh, the 60s and the 70s when I became first uh, uh, informed and aware of some of the things that were really happening beneath the surface. You know, you can look at the news, look at your television, read your newspapers, and you can see the surface of the news. So-and-so said this, so-and-so did that, and then somebody will explain it to you. This is why they did that, and isn't this good or bad? Uh, and you're, you sort of look at the facts, and, and you believe all of the facts because they're in the newspaper or they're on television, so they have to be true, right? Well, not necessarily. But anyway, so yeah, that takes me back, and I had forgotten about those two videos I did um, one was called Anarchy USA, and, uh, and, and the other one was the Communist Revolution in America. And uh, I'd forgotten about them. I mean, that was ancient history. It was 1968 or six, yeah, 1968, I guess. And uh, somebody called me on the phone and said, you know, well, you saw your, your uh, presentation on that on YouTube. Did you know it's going viral? And uh, <laughs> I actually said, well, what presentation is that? <laughs> and when they described it to me, I thought, oh, my gosh, that old thing. Well, I was glad to see that somebody had 
bought an old VHS copy of it apparently back in the day and they had transferred it to uh, digital and put it on YouTube and there it was. I went and looked at it and I said, my gosh, I didn't, I hardly didn't recognize myself. Um, I was very young, of course. I'm sitting there in my living room in this house and uh, had my suit on, a little narrow tie and some sideburns like I had to have in those days. As you know, very serious about my topic. I had done a lot of research on it. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of filling in the holes here, trying to think about what I can say about it, except that, yes, I had done a lot of research on it. And I was in the process in those days of, of learning everything. And so everything was new. Everything was, was dramatic. Everything was important. And I remember every time I would discover something like uh, the communist strategy for revolution, not just being a violent revolution, but how they use in civilized societies, they use the parliament. They use violence to frighten people into accepting laws that bring communism to being through legal processes. And the whole, for the whole purpose of the violence was not to destroy the government by violence, but simply to scare the people and the politicians into voting themselves into communism. I thought, well, I never heard that before. And here I am reading these communist manuals and uh, listening to their speeches and reading their books. And then Manny Johnson's book came along and I read that. So I guess what I'm just trying to tell you is that I'm delighted that all of that, that sequence that led to my early awakening back in the day is all of a sudden it's, the wave has come back and it's crashing on the beach again. And I was even surprised myself at how how timely everything is. I mean, everything that I had said in those old presentations is still true, except you might say it's on steroids today. So um, I don't know what more I can say, except that I'm delighted to see so many people taking an interest in something that I thought was dead and buried and nobody cared about and darn well, how am I gonna awaken a, my fellow human beings up to the reality? And now I'm delighted to see that this is happening through the miracle of the internet. It's wild how quickly things can catch back on. And uh, I know I saw, it, I ended up buying the book and I, I did a video on it, got a few million views on my video covering it. I've gotten dozens of, of um, messages saying, you know, I bought that book because it's truly fantastic and it's really mirroring what's going on today. So that's amazing. That's something that's that old came back and it's just so powerful, perhaps more powerful than it even was at the time that you recorded it. Second yeah. thing I want to ask is, uh, do you see a resemblance to today? Because one, when I saw your video, the reason I think it's going viral is because it's uh, eerily similar to everything we're seeing play out in America in 2020. And then you read this book and you're like, wow, this is really exactly what the leftists do on all levels of, of society, it seems mm -hmm. like. Yeah, well, that's, uh, it's not a surprise when you understand that uh, there's a playbook. And the playbook was uh, written by Karl Marx and uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. And then some of the followers that came along afterwards and tweaked it a little bit. But the underlying philosophy and the strategies have never changed. And they cannot change, actually, because the uh, ideology of um, Marxism-Leninism, they always put the two words together when they're describing this. And the reason they do that, I discovered... Uh, back up just a second. I, in those days, I had spent quite a bit of time hanging out down at the communist bookstore down in Los Angeles. And I was I bought all their literature and I read it. So I really got to understand some of these 
um, more esoteric things like why do they call it Marxism-Leninism? Well, why don't they just say communism or Marxism and so forth? Well, they found out because um, they're talking about a particular status of enlightenment of their followers, which includes the economic and social theories of Karl Marx, as elucidated in the Communist Manifesto, or Das Kapital, and then they add to that the voluminous writings and strategies of Lenin. So what's what's the difference? Well, the difference is very profound. The difference is that Lenin really actually had a lot of hidden contempt for Marxism, to tell you the truth. He had to go along with it because that was the the bedrock of the movement. But Marxism was, I mean, uh, Lenin was impatient with the standard Marxist, you know, the the college professor type Marxist, the socialist, preaching, you know, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, and all of the slogans and things which sound so good. uh, But uh, when you figure out how they apply it, it's not so good. But uh, so Lenin was kind of... uh, irate and uh, very impatient with those Marxists who were theorists, you know. Lenin is the founder of the Communist Party. Lenin is the guy that said, look, I don't care what you guys, how smart you are, or how great your essays are, or how good your debates are, uh, or your logic, or your reasoning, or anything else. The only thing that matters is coming to power. So forget all that. I mean, it's good enough for the, the dummies that think that they're into something big. You can entertain them with all kinds of logical arguments of economics and social justice and all these things. So they're just to entice the idealistic and the, the naive. He said, but let's get down to business, comrades. Our job is to come to power. And so we'll say whatever we have to say, but uh, he's a very quotable guy. He said, remember, promises are like pie crusts made to be broken. And this is Leninism and it's hardcore. I mean, you just say things to come to power. But what you do is totally different than what you say. So when people say uh, that they're a Marxist-Leninist or that they're following the concepts of Marxism-Leninism, they're telling you something. And that is that you can't believe anything they say. They're, they're telling you up front that they're insincere. They're telling you up front that they don't believe anything except to come to power and, and control your life and to, uh, you know, to be your master. And they, they, if you read their stuff, you get this very clearly. But, of course, people don't read their stuff. So uh, having done all that, I, I, I was so imbued with it, it's still stuck inside my brain. Uh, now you look at what's happening on the streets, and it's Marxism-Leninism. And in one country, they'll, they'll, they'll pit um, Catholics against Jews or, or Christians against uh, Muslims. Or they'll, they'll pit... Um, the rich against the poor, and they, they, they talk about this. They, for a country that they want to take over, they carefully examine its social structure, its economic structure, and find out what are the weaknesses in it? What are the potential areas that if you, if you kept hammering away at the cracks, could you split it? Could you get the people fighting each other, hating each other over something? Following the age-old rule of, you know, divide and conquer, so the point, the first thing they have to decide is, well, how are we going to divide people? On what grounds? And so now we get to these pamphlets that we're talking about. They determined long ago that that division in the United States would be race. They said, that's the weak point in America. So let's forget all these other things. We use those in other countries. But in America, we're going to get whites and blacks killing each other. 
Now, once that happens, we can take over because they're so busy fighting each other and hating each other that they won't notice that we, by the way, have taken over. And then, of course, we put an end to it because it, we clamp it down with an iron fist. And we just use the, and they call them the useful idiots. Mm. They really refer to the people that go out and, and, and really get all riled up over the ideology of, of class warfare or religious warfare or race warfare. They call them useful idiots. And they know that, um, that when the time comes after the uh, old system is destroyed, there'll be a uh, consolidation period where they have to establish their own power now and make it as rigid, or if not no, more so, as the old one. And at that point, they know that um, a lot of the people that help them come to power, when they see what's, how it's really working out, they're going to be uh, their enemies because a lot of them are idealists. And they, when they find out it's not turning out the way they were told, it's turning out to be worse than the old order even, well, then they'll turn against the communists. And so they know that that's going to happen. And so then when they get to that consolidation period, well, they'll just take all these former useful idiots, as they call them, and they'll kill them. And they, they have to do that because they know otherwise they'll have to uh, fight with them later on. Now, how do I know that? It's because they write about it. It's in their training manuals. And I've interviewed defectors, people from the KGB, for example, that talk about it. And they refer to the documents. And they refer to the historical evidence of it. It always happens. Every time communists come to power in a country, they go through these certain steps. They have to get rid of the police, for one thing. And we call it defunding the police. But in all other countries, they just say, get rid of the police. The police are part of the old capitalist imperialist powers, and we must get rid of them. They're cruel, they're unjust, they're terrible. They're, they're instruments of tyranny. And of course, they, they kill all the policemen and all their families and everything. And, uh, but the, in the process, then they replace them with all the criminals that have been released from the prisons, the worst dredges of society they can find. And those, it's the criminals that get through and shoot and kill all of the enemies of what they know will be enemies after they come to power. And so after the, the, the criminals and the maniacs do all that killing, and they think they're going to be in charge now, but then when they're done with their job, then they get killed. So, mm. you know, this is the way it works. Uh, and when I discovered that, I thought, wow, how, how come they don't teach this in school? And then I found out it's because the, one, the teachers in the school were the ones that were following the, the strategies. Mm. <laughs> and that was a blow, let me tell you. You inspired me to start reading the communist stuff to see what they're saying in their own words instead of others. And uh, it is insane. Um, and what you're seeing in Portland, Seattle, these leftist Marxist mayors, they're getting run out of their own cities. So what you're saying, they have no loyalty. You already see it. Ted Wheeler in Portland is moving uh, his apartment because he's getting attacked. You have Jenny Durkin in Seattle. Yeah. There's no loyalty. They're too idealistic. And the yeah. people who are in charge are... Um, just lying. I know what you said as well as, you know, they're purposely doing it. People need to read these scriptures because I consider myself an honest person. When I started learning this stuff, uh, even through the Trump administration, seeing how the left operated, I started leaning towards the right. And people said, you're not in the middle anymore. I said, I go where the truth is. If the left is lying so much and, and the lies just started getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And they kind of dropped their masquerade. And I, mm -hmm. I'm just like, this is you know, I can't lie and say it's 50-50 right now. I, they're, they're robbing people. They're letting high-level criminals out of jail. They're allowing the destruction of uh, major cities. On that note, I know you talked about defectors. Your other viral video, you might be, even though you've had a fantastic career, right now you might be bigger than you've ever been because this is, I think, the best video on the internet. 
your interview with Yuri Bezmanov, which has just gone, I, I don't even know if you could calculate. Um, I'm going to talk about, I know Call of Duty, I think, used it recently too, um, the, the big game. But can you tell me about that, why you sat down with him and how that came to be and just a little bit about that? Because people love that interview. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And the funny thing about that or the unfunny thing about that is that when I first uh, recorded Yuri and recorded him on videotape, uh, nobody was interested in it. And I thought, this is very disappointing because nobody, everybody was in those days, you know, at the stage, oh, communism. Are you one of those guys that's concerned about communism? Come on, communism is gone. You know that. When they, they, Berlin Wall is down or coming down. The communists are fools or foolish. You know, well, come on. You're one of those conspiracy theorists. So nobody was interested, you know. But I had the recording, so I just stuck it away. And it wasn't until maybe 10, 15 years later, somebody asked me about it. I thought, oh, well, maybe somebody's interested. So I, I put it on tape, uh, VHS tape, and I guess we sold a couple of thousand copies, which is nothing. And then it just, it just lay there languishing all this time until um, about a year ago, all of a sudden it's going viral on the internet. I didn't know it. <laughs> and, uh, and now, as you say, uh, yeah, the, the, it's becoming a, the, the theme of a, of a major uh, game. And uh, Call of Duty, and it's it. I guess it reached five or seven million people on the first day they released the promotion for it. And you look at the promotion. Sure enough, there's excerpts of of my video interviewing um, of Yuri Bezmenov on it. So it's it's encouraging actually to see this happen, and it reminds me of the old the old adage that you know uh, people have to sometimes they have to suffer a little bit and hurt before they get serious about a topic. The useful idiots, the, the leftists who are idealistically believing in the beauty of Soviet socialist or communist or whatever system, when they get disillusioned, they become the worst enemies. That's why my KGB instructors specifically made the point, never bother with leftists. Forget about these political prostitutes. Aim higher. This was my instruction. Try to get into, into uh, large circulation established conservative media. Reach filthy rich movie makers, intellectuals, so-called academic circles. Cynical, egocentric people who can look into your eyes with angelic expression and tell you a lie. These are the most recruitable people, people who lack moral principles, who are either too greedy or too uh, suffer from self-importance. Uh, they feel that uh, they, they matter a lot. Uh, these are the people who KGB wanted very much to recruit. But or to eliminate the others, to execute the others, don't they serve some purpose? Wouldn't they be no, the ones they, they rely they on? They serve purpose only at the stage of destabilization of a nation. For example, your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the... Of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are not they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen. Of course, they will be lined up against the wall and shot. Reminds me of the joke about this. Uh city guy that visited a farmer friend and they had the donkey out there and 
and the guy wanted to get the donkey to move into the barn. And so he picked up a big board and he just whacked the donkey, or I guess the mule, I'd, I've forgotten which it was. One of them is smart and one, is, one of them isn't. Let's just say the donkey. And, uh, and the donkey staggered to its knees and then got up and went into the barn. And the city guy said, well, what did you do that for? And I hit that poor donkey over the head with that big board and almost killed him. And he said, well, yeah, you know, but, you know, the donkey will do what you tell him to do. But first, you have to get his attention. <laughs> well, I've often thought people are like that. If they're living in a very comfort, comfortable society, they got all these appliances and all these luxuries and all these freedoms. And you discover that somebody is planning to take all that away. And they're, you, you read the strategy, you know what the playbook is, and you see it happening. But still, people are enjoying life. Everything is still good. They don't want to hear this. Yeah, they think you're crazy. They don't want to hear it, first, first of all. And it sounds so bizarre that it, it, it's hard to convince them to even take the time to examine it. So now we come to the point where, all right, we, we're being hit over the head with a board right now. So I, I think that's partly what's happening, is that people are, are going, whoa, what was that? What's going on? Now they're taking a real serious interest in learning about why this is happening so they can figure out what to do about it. I always say the truth is like a pillar. It's something that doesn't move. You have all the fake news, you have all the propaganda, the censorship, but the truth ages very well. And they always historically fight so hard against it. And you're seeing that with your videos where you said something that was profound at the time. And it's so real that even 50, 60 years later, 30 years later, it's still true. And perhaps still one of the best examples to explain uh, what's going on. It's incredible. Yeah. On, on that note, I wanted to ask you, um, did Call of Duty pay you for the interview or did they just kind of take the clips? I'm just oh, yeah. They pay, I, got a, I got a nice little check. I forgot what it was. I mean, you can't buy a car with it, but it was, it was going to be nice. Uh, and I, everybody said, hey, that's a big company. And, you know, they're going to make millions and millions of dollars off of that. You ought to ask for a lot of money. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, maybe I should. And I thought, you know, I think I'd just be... Uh, I'll just be very modest because I wanted that thing out. Absolutely. To me, the biggest payoff is not the money. It's mm. because millions of people are seeing it. You mm. couldn't pay me enough. I mean, I would have given it. If they would have said, no, we can't pay you anything, I would have still given it to them. Now that I've got the contract signed, I'll tell them that. But yeah, <laughs> that was the important thing to me. <laughs> That's incredible. When I saw it, because everything now is leftist, Marxist, communist, everything. It's in SpongeBob. It's in Nickelodeon. You can't find a single company that doesn't do that. So when I saw your Yuri interview in it, I was like, no way. I can't believe they use something that's yeah. going to lead people to learning about communism. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah they're going upstream for sure. It's, it's amazing. I have to ask you, uh, I believe, correct me if you're wrong, I looked online that you're 88 years young. Is that true? Um, terrible, uh, gross exaggeration. I'm almost 89. 89. <laughs> Incredible. So I have to ask you, uh, what are some secrets and some life advice to live a long, healthy life? <laughs> I don't really know, to tell you the truth. Right, let's start off with luck. Um, and then follow it up with the fact that I had... Early on, I had some pretty serious illnesses and some big scares in my life. I thought I was going to die of multiple sclerosis and things like that. That's how I'd been diagnosed. It scared the heck out of me. So I, at that point, see, I got hit over the head with a board. 
I started taking, well, what, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? Am I going to die in my 20s, in my early 30s, you know? So I started to read up on multiple sclerosis, and that led me to the role of uh, trace minerals and the uh, development of the neurological system. And that led me to the discovery of other nutritional factors that uh, affect human health at a very profound level. And for the first time, I was becoming a serious student of nutrition rather than pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the board hit me and, and lodged me in the right direction. And uh, so ever since that point, I've been trying to be conscious of not destroying myself. The way I started off, I mean, I was I was uh, smoking not a cigarette, but I was smoking a pipe because I thought it looked dignified, you know. I was smoking all the time, burned my tongue. I thought, hmm, that's not, a, that's not a good sign. My lips and my tongue were starting to get raw and sore. I said, you know, I wonder if you could get cancer from that stuff, you know. <laughs> and I was drinking a lot. I was drinking, and I wasn't getting sleep, and I, my diet was terrible. So uh, all of that gradually got cleaned up fairly early in my life. And... Um, I, I still I'm, I still eat red meat, but not nearly as much as I used to. I try to avoid uh, anything that's toxic. I don't take drugs. And every time I go to the dentist or the doctor or have any reason for someone to ask me what what drugs or what meds I am on, I fill out the form and I say zero. And, and then they said, No, what are your what drugs do you take? I said, No, I don't take any. They said, no, I mean the drugs you take. You know, they're normal drugs. I said, no, you're not listening. I don't take any. And they can't believe it. A guy like my age, I'm supposed to be taking 20 or 30 drugs, you know. Mm. Well, I gave, I got the picture a long time ago that health does not come out of a test tube. Mm. And uh, so anyway, stuff like that, I'm, I'm onto a couple of uh, nutritional things that are, I think, a little bit different. If anybody's interested, I'm not trying to sell any of this stuff, but some of the more more unusual things I put to our website, which is uh, uh, realityzone.com. I have a, 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 proteal, a proteolase activator. I've got an enzyme activator that, uh, um, you know, well, I, I won't get into it, but you'll find it all on, on realityzone.com. A couple of things like that. Uh, but mostly um, I'd stay away from things that are toxic and I try and eat whole foods and um, exercise almost every day. N- nothing heroic, believe me, but enough to keep the bones and the, uh, and the muscles intact. I remember reading a long time ago that there's something called the piezoelectric effect, which I knew it's an electrical effect. It's that when you take, have two materials of different uh, molecular structure adjacent to each other, and you bend them and you put pressure on them, it creates an electrical field between the two. That's the principle behind a thermostat. You turn the knob and you put tension on a piece of, two pieces of metal and it changes the electrical conductivity and you've got a thermostat that um, can turn circuits on or off depending on the temper- temperature, which causes these things to bend and expand and so forth. So th- I discovered that that same thing happens in the human body, that when you put pressure on your bones, like if you're walking or running or lifting, stretching, you put pressure on the bones and the bones flex a little bit, it generates an electrical current. Not much, but enough. And it it was interesting to see that that little electrical current was what helps to stimulate the regeneration of bone with new 
with new calcium deposits, healthy deposits, and that kind of thing. So over the years, I've, I've learned little things like that. I thought, well, that's the reason I'm supposed to exercise. Not because I want to be a bodybuilder, but because I want my bones to have calcium in them and, and that kind of thing. So it's a, a kind of a lifetime of discovery of little things like that. I think most people, if they read a couple of really good nutrition books, they would get all of it probably in a day or two. It took me, you know, 30 or 40 years to discover it. But uh, having said all that, I really don't have an answer. I think I'm, I'm lucky and, um, and I, I'm very happy because of that. So I don't know how many more years I have, but I'm going full bore. I'm uh, probably working harder now than I ever have. I'm sure I put in at least uh, 12 hours a day on average wow. and uh, enjoy it. And so uh, what more can I say? Amazing. Well, I'm going to make you say more. I just have a quick question because I love coffee. So do you drink coffee? And then what trace minerals do you like? <laughs> well, I do drink a little bit of coffee. I had to give that up way back too because I was drinking way too much of it. And uh, the coffee was fine. It, it, it lifted me up. But then about an hour afterwards, it would drop me down really hard. And when I, when I hit the ground, I, I found out that often my, my brain would go into a kind of a blank mode. I couldn't, who am I? What's my name? What am I supposed to be doing there? I would just get very blank. This is not good for a guy that's supposed to be writing books and giving speeches. You know, you get up in front of an audience and they say, well, Mr. Griffin, what do you think about this? And you go, oh, you play like you're Biden or something. You're going to go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and you got 10 years on him and he, I mean, he's losing it. So do you still drink coffee? A little bit. I, I drink what I, I like my mochas. That's a little bit of chocolate and a little bit, a little bit of a cup, probably about a, about a half a cup of coffee a day is about what I drink. And uh, I don't, and that, that doesn't bother me as far as I know. And the trace minerals, what are good trace minerals just off the top? Well, I, uh, I don't really know which are the most important ones. I just try and find a full spectrum trace mineral okay. uh, and, um, I don't know which ones do the job, but I'm convinced that it's those trace minerals, uh, molybdenum and things you can't even pronounce, um, that uh, you're not going to find in your normal bottle of, of multivitamins and minerals. And normal body has, I mean, the normal bottle has a lot of good regular minerals, you know, the calcium and the magnesium and the zinc, which is very, very important. But uh, you get those trace minerals and you don't even know what they're for. And, um, and that's the trick, because I don't think science really knows what they're for. All I know is that years ago, I read a, a book, I think it was called Mental and Elemental Elements, some kind of a tongue tire, Mental and Elemental Elements, written by a um, psychiatrist. And the story goes something like this, that uh, uh, he was treating his, his uh, psych psychiatric patients uh, like everybody else, using the standard protocols of therapy and, and uh, some drugs, you know, drugs they stimulate this or do that, numb that. And it, it wasn't getting very good results, but it was a, a practice. It was a living. That's how all the doctors made their living, is treating people and not necessarily curing them, but treating them. And he said that um, he had to take a vacation or wanted to take a vacation one summer and so there was another psychiatrist down the hall in the medical building where he worked, who he had met and seemed like a nice chap. And so he asked him if he would take his patient load while he was on vacation, if they, if they had any problems. And the guy said, sure, yeah, send him in. So uh, the psychiatrist who wrote the book 
took his two or three week vacation. And when he came back and the patients started to return, <laughs> they were all well. <laughs> and he could, what happened to my patients? <laughs> we, what did he do to them? He fixed them up. So he, got, he called the guy and said, what the heck are you doing? And he learned for the first time. This is an MD psychiatrist now writing this book, big fat book. And he said, this guy down the hall said, look, don't you know that um, most, if not all, of these mental disorders are not psychological in origin. They're mineral deficiencies of one kind or another. And the brain is so intricate and so uh, specialized that it, it needs not much of some of these minerals, but it needs them a little bit in order to function properly as part of their building blocks. So once you get these trace minerals into them, they're going to be like normal people. So this, the guy that wrote the book said that was, that was worth more than his whole medical education. And so he started to learn more about it. And then he found the same thing. Well, I read this book and I'm thinking, gee, I wonder if that's true. So uh, from that point, I started to, uh, make sure that I was getting trace minerals, all of them, all of that I could find. I don't know which ones are doing the job, if any of them. And I did know, by the way, along this path, that aluminum is not one of those things you want to be adding to your diet. So I, I realized that aluminum was this, uh, the suspected culprit for Alzheimer's. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> because you could find deposits of aluminum in the brains that have been autopsied by uh, Alzheimer's patients and you compare those of people of the same age who did not have Alzheimer's and there was not as much aluminum, if any. So I got the clue on that one. I gave up eating anything that had been cooked in an aluminum pan. I don't, for many decades, I haven't drunk anything that comes out of an aluminum can or, or, or food cooked in an aluminum pan. No source of aluminum. I threw out all the toothpaste that had aluminum and fluorides in it. And I got rid of all the underarm deodorants that are loaded with aluminum. You'd be surprised how many sources of aluminum there are in the things that we put on our bodies or take into our bodies. So there again, it's just another example of just piece by piece, these, these things fall in front of me. And um, so as to the uh, brain, um, I think that the trace minerals are very, very, very important. And uh, of course, the absence of heavy metals like aluminum lodging in the synapses of the brain. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it. I definitely do because I want to learn as I go on. And that's what I've done too. try to drop bad habits and, you know, pick up good ones. On that note, very briefly, I know you did a bunch. You have a bunch of uh, books and movies as well. If you want to run through a few of your favorite books and movies and just give a brief, <laughs> you know, description of them. I mean, I'm, you've done so many, but maybe just your top five or something. Oh golly, my top five! I don't even know what they are. They're all my they're all my top favorite ones. Uh, let me uh, let me divert that question, if I may, to a, a project that I've really been involved in for the last year, sure. similar to that, and it's called Red Pill University. Mm. And my concept with that, when I started that, was that we would create an online free university. And I would pull together the best presentations, documentaries, or speeches, or lectures, or interviews that I could find anywhere in the world on various topics of real interest to the red pill mentality. We want to know what's really going on in the world, affecting our liberty, on our health, our attitudes, you know, all of those things. And uh, so 
since I started to do that, I have been amazed at how many things have been sitting on the internet and I didn't even know it. Some excellent stuff. And I've been bringing, bringing them together in Red Pill University. Mm. I try and clean them up if they need digitizing and do anything I can do to improve them. Most of them don't need it. Sometimes I'll edit some stuff out that's just a waste of time. And uh, I put it up. I write a little introduction to it. I try and analyze the meat of what's in it so that people can know what to look for when they see it. And it's up and it's free. And, uh, and so right now, I think we probably have reached our goal of a year ago, which is to be the largest uh, depository of information like this in the world. Mm. If we're not there, we're going to be there very, very soon. It, hardly a day goes by, but what I don't add one or two more videos to that. But it's kind of strange that I do that because I've always been uh, biased in favor of the written material, the written word over videos. And I still am, by the way. I think for anything that's going to have a lasting impact on society in the long run, I mean like a hundred years or more, it's got to be the written page. Mm. Because videos and news stories, I mean, they come and they go. I mean, if, if we lose power, for example, if we have an uh, electromagnetic pulse or a, a corona mass ejection from the sun and it blows out all our transformers and the power goes out, for a period of time, let's say like uh, 10 years or something like that, while they try and figure out how to rebuild huge transformers when you don't have power to drive the machines to build the transformers is kind of a challenge and uh, all of those things. So um, yeah, when all, when all the digital stuff disappears and it will someday, it will, maybe not for 10 years, but it might disappear for a year or six months, who knows? Or, or it can become, become the memory hole of a totalitarian state where certain things that are very valuable just disappear. Mm, I mean, yeah. they, you can throw a switch if it's all digital. And uh, so I've always, for those reasons, preferred the printed page. And also I've discovered that um, it seems like the people who are really the movers and shakers in the world, the thought leaders, the ones that get things organized and say, let's do it and let's do it this way and this way. And let's, what are you waiting for? You do that and you do that. And when, when volunteers, let's get it going. The natural leaders, most of them are readers. They read books. And the ones that say, well, I don't have time to read anything, usually are the followers. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody down because I know there have been times in my life where I didn't want to read anything. Mm. But... Um, I think what I just said is a general truth that when people are, don't have the power of concentration or don't want to develop that power to concentrate on something to the point where they really master it, where they really get hold of it and they think of, well, what about this and what about that? And they keep going back to it until they get all the questions answered. They're not going to leave it alone. Those are the people that are going to lead us, I think, back to sanity and lead this world back to a place where we want to be. So I'm, I'm certainly not giving up the power of the printed page. I think that's still where the bedrock is. But in the meantime, we have to build a popular movement of huge numbers of people that if they don't necessarily understand why this is right or the particular proposal or an idea, they may not understand why and couldn't debate it necessarily against an aggressive opponent. They still know in their heart and in their, in their 
bodies that it's right. And so they'll be there and they want, they want the leadership. They want to hear the reasons that they know it's right, but they want to hear the intellectual explanation for it. But those people are just waiting for, for this kind of leadership. And the way to reach out to those numbers is video and news stories and speeches and the verbal and visual um, communications media. So we have the, I think, the obligation to do both, to build a solid uh, intellectual ideological foundation for our movement. And this is, this is going to be the world of the readers and the thinkers. But, and then some of those, some of those are going to be doers. And those are going to recruit a lot of others who are doers. And they will say, okay, what do you want me to do? I want to help. And you can build the structure in that fashion, but you've got to start with a foundation, a solid foundation of the question, why? If we don't know why we believe or want something, then we're going to be a pushover for some kind of a demagogue who will give us the wrong reasons and we won't know that they're wrong. And uh, we, we won't recognize that it's uh, deception. So I don't know, I, I, I sidestepped your question because I didn't give no, you my fine. five best ones. Uh, <clears throat> let's see if I could do that. <clears throat> You're talking about uh, documentaries and informational videos, Just, I presume. Yeah, throw a few out there so people could check them out because I saw you have a huge list of things that oh, I, I have a huge list. I didn't, yeah. even, I didn't even know you were a part of and I've heard of them before and I was like, oh wow, he's really... <laughs> well, let's just say for, for the general approach, go to redpilluniversity.org and you're going to see a lot of almost everything I can think of I'm putting in there. Okay. And um, now we're not featuring books or anything, but those will be referenced from the videos. You can say, but if you want more, if you're a reader, <laughs> here's where you can go and hear the books. Now the books, uh, you'll find those over at uh, realityzone.com. And we sell those. That's a commercial enterprise. At Red Pill University, it's all free. So forth. that's a good place to begin. Now, let me give you an example. When I was raising my kids, when they were little talkers, uh, I wanted them to know some fundamentals. And so I, I asked myself, well, what books do I want these kids to read? And I came up with a couple of them. And then, well, I, I really wasn't very nice about it because I said, uh, when you guys can answer questions about these books, uh, I'll continue giving you your allowance. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had some motivation a little bit to read the books. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done that, I'm afraid. Uh, so what books did I suggest or urge them to read? The first one was The Law by Frederick Bastiat, or we would call it Bastiat. Mm. He was a French uh, legislator and author. He wrote this thing, what, 130 years ago? at a time when the arguments for collectivism, which were are many variants of collectivism, we typically call it socialism, communism, fascism, or Nazism, or some, something like that. But the real generic name for it is collectivism. Uh, the idea for collectivism was just becoming popular, it was shortly after the French Revolution. And France was one of the first countries to absorb it into their legislative bodies and the thinking of the people there. And here was Frederick Bastiat uh, standing like a, like a very noble warrior against, against the mob. And he was just explaining to them as best he could why they were making mistakes in their reasoning. And he called it the law. 
And when I read that years and years ago, I was just bowled over it because I buy it because I thought herein in this little speech, or it actually was a series of essays that he wrote. And um, it's not sure that he ever delivered it as a speech in the House of Parliament there in France. But I, I'd like to think that he did. And the reason I'm giving you this background is because I took that, that little booklet or the series of essays and I read it, I recorded it, I, I put it on tape and ran it through a little echo chamber to make it sound like I was speaking before a large group of people. And so the imagery was that here was Frederick Bastia speaking before the French parliament, talking to these idiot socialists, you see. So, uh, but the booklet itself is where it, where it came from. It's called The Law. So that was the first one I gave to my kids to read and, and understand. And it's not difficult. It's some very, very basic uh, concepts in there. Another one was The Mainspring of Human Progress by Henry Grady Weaver. Most people have never heard of that book. Uh, again, it's a little thick book, but it's not difficult. It's the, he's, the guy that wrote it, Weaver, was an engineer. He was not a historian or a philosopher or anything like that. He was an engineer. He was a hobby historian and a darn good one. And he had read the pages of history. He probably is one of the few people I know that's read all of the, all of the pages of Will and, and um, Ariel Durant's uh, 12 volume or whatever this set of the history of the world. I mean, nobody reads all of that stuff. They put it on their shelves. <laughs> so it makes them look like they really know something. But who reads all of that? I, I mean, my, my oldest son did, but I haven't read all of it. If I have something I want to look up, I'll go look it up like a big encyclopedia. Anyway, this, Weaver had read all of them. And, and so he's, he comes up with the idea, well, what is the mainstring of human progress. Why is it that throughout history, there were certain periods in history when human progress sprang forth, when there was a lot of development of art and music and mathematics and inventions and, uh, and liberty and a lot of things were you know, just flowered. And it happened in different places of the world at different times. Sometimes it was in the uh, old Muslim world. Sometimes it was in the new world. Sometimes it was in Europe. And he said, what is it? What's common? And he found it. In every case, during that period where there was a spike of creativity, there was very little government involved. Now, they could have had tyrants in those periods, but the tyrants were weak, and they didn't affect the lives of most people. And so the society didn't have this burden on its back, this burden of regulations and control and excessive taxations. They were basically free people. Unless you crossed the tyrant directly, well, then you were in trouble. But uh, basically society was free. And the minute that um, uh, that stopped and the governments attempted to regulate everything in, in the economy and in the in the personal lives of their citizens, everything shut down and they started to lose ground. I thought that was very, a very profound discovery. So I put that on the list. And then let me see, what was the third one? It was, oh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Grady Weaver. Another little thin book. And he, Henry, I mean, not Henry, excuse me, uh, Henry Hazlitt, mm. uh, Weaver wrote the other book. Yeah, Henry Hazlitt uh, wrote Economics in One Lesson. He had the audacity, I thought, 
when I first approached that book. He had the audacity to say, here's one lesson that covers all of economics. If you understand this one lesson, you got it all. You don't have to spend four years, eight years in university studying economics. You can just put about 20 minutes of your attention onto this one little lesson and think about it and you've got it all. I thought, how absurd that is. So I bought the book. And by the time I put the, well, before I got to the point where I put the book down, at about one third point, I said, yeah, he did it. He really did it. And uh, so I, I don't want to keep the suspense any greater. I'll just tell you what the lesson is, if I can paraphrase it. Uh, Hazlitt said, when examining the merits or the demerits of a particular proposal, economic proposal, one must consider not only the short-term short effects on one individual or a small group of individuals, one must also consider the long-term effects on everyone else. Okay, that's a pretty simple concept. Don't just look at, oh, here's, here's a poor group of people and we, we want to help them, so we give them the money and they're helped. So that's good, isn't it? But now if you look, at least they're helped for now. Now if you look back off and say, well, yeah, where did the money come from? You took it from everybody else, right? And so they weren't helped. They were, they were hindered a little bit. And what happened to the guy that got the freebie in the first place? Ten years from now, he still doesn't know how to help himself. So he's in worse shape than he was then. So in the long term, even the guy you've helped is not necessarily doing so well either. So once we understand that simple lesson of, his, of, of economics, then I think we're in a better position to evaluate the, most of the proposals that are being issued to us today. Those are three books that come to mind, and I think that's a pretty good start for anybody. That's excellent. And I'm going to give all three of those. You really inspired me with the color communism, common sense. And now I'm getting to the core. It's like the news talks about what other people said. I'm trying to get to what they actually said in their own words. And that's how you could really get to it. Um, on that note, you know, you seem educated to anybody with a brain that's watching this. But Wikipedia, if you search for your books or you search for you, they call you uh, your right wing views, conspiracy theories regarding virus, you know, like all sorts of kind of smear jabs. So what do you think about that and wh why they're doing that? Well, I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they don't like what I say. I'm talking about them in most cases. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, they're those people. And first of all, what is Wikipedia? Wikipedia is like any other group or organization. It doesn't exist. Organizations don't exist. Corporations don't exist. Churches don't exist. Clubs don't exist. Political parties don't exist. Uh, groups don't exist. Only people exist. So when you're talking about Wikipedia, you're talking about the people at Wikipedia. What, so who are these people? The, um, the editorial policy, of course, is, is greatly influenced by the people who own the shares of management at Wikipedia, but they have given a great deal of control to their editors uh, who monitor all of this huge flood of data and certain editors are at different levels of priority and they have and, and different authorities and so forth. A lot of editors at the low level, you can go in and edit anything yourself, but you can immediately be overridden by an editor who has higher authority than, than you. I learned about all of this because uh, I got a call one day 
this was, I'm going to guess about six or seven years ago, from a lady. She said, um, she said, you don't know who I am, but I'm an editor at Wikipedia. I said, oh, really? Because <laughs> by, by this time, I had already read what Wikipedia was saying about me. And the, the first sentence, as you know, is that G. Edward Griffin, well-known conspiracy theorist, da-da-da-da-da. So that's how it starts off. So right away, they put, they put an idea in the eyes or the minds of the readers that I'm somebody you shouldn't listen to because I'm a conspiracy theorist. So that didn't happen by accident. Somebody put that in there. And uh, she said, you don't know me, but I'm an editor at Wikipedia. And you probably don't know that you are the center of a great deal of a firestorm going on between the editors at Wikipedia right now. I said, I am? I didn't know that. What firestorm over me? And she said, well, I and one other editor, uh, when we saw what they were doing to your bio biography, which by the way, I never did that. Other people would send things in for my biography, taken from things that was available elsewhere and things that I had written about. But I never submitted anything to Wikipedia. So actually it was, it was pretty objective, I thought, when I read it before Wikipedia started to alter it. And um, so anyway, they, this editor called me, she said, we saw what they were doing to your write-up. And she said, we thought it was fair because it, because of what they were saying, but we decided to check it out for ourselves. And she said, when we started reading your stuff, we found out that, that what they were saying about you was not accurate. It was not fair. They, it was obviously a smear job to convince people not to pay any attention to you. So we expressed our objection to it. And therein began the war because a lot of the editors were then taking a look at my biography, and they had to choose up sides. And so there was these screaming debates going back and forth. And it really wasn't just about me. It was what I represented. And the thing that really stuck in their craw was that I have written a book called World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. And in that book, I took a very uh, negative view of the pharmaceutical industry as being a corrupted industry that was interested more in making money than it was in curing disease. And that they figured out that the way to make the most money is not to cure diseases, because if you cure a disease, then, then you, you, you lose your customer because they don't need you anymore. The way to make money in medicine is not to cure anything, but to prolong the illness and require continuous treatment for the entire lifespan of the patient so that you would be a horrible mistake to cure the patient. You want to maintain the patient on the medications for the rest of their lives. And when I discovered that, especially as it applied to the field of cancer, I wrote about it. And so the pharmaceutical industry I discovered from this lady, she explained it to me. She said, look, you should know that every major corporation in America or in the world, and especially the pharmaceutical corporations have full-time employees that do nothing except monitor statements that go into Wikipedia, Wikipedia that affect their industry or their company. Wow. That's their job. Wow. And if they see anything that's detrimental, their job is to rewrite it or take it out or mm -hmm. question it or damage it in some way. The best way is just to get it out. And she said, these are full-time people. 
They get paid to do this. This is not grassroots. This is not the people speaking. This is corporate corporatism protecting the images and the profits margins of their industry. Wow. I said, aha, that's how it happens. Wow. I guess that's the short answer to your question. That's what happens. And it wasn't happening just to me, but you look at, look at Wikipedia in the field of health, there are no doctors who advocate uh, alternative health as opposed to drug-based health that have a favorable write-up on Wikipedia. They're all conspiracy theorists or quacks or charlatans or something like that, according to Wikipedia, and that's the reason. And uh, Wikipedia definitely has a left-wing skew. You know, overall, anybody who rejects like left-wing authoritarianism, they, they make look bad. But uh, someone who I, I tried to show people on the left, Marianne Williamson, she's very liberal, but she kind of questioned the pharmacy industry in the debates. And they brought her on CNN and, and she was like, whoa, I didn't expect you to attack me. But I'm like, it's two things they don't like. Uh, war, Tulsi Gabbard went out the war, the endless wars. And then Marianne Williamson, liberal as can be, socialist as can be, she went at the pharmacy industry. And I, I did a video earlier today, the biggest lobbyist in 2019 as well. So we know where they're getting it from. I yeah. guess I, I want to get to a few questions real quick before I, I let you leave. But um, respectively, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on Bill Cooper, Alex Jones and David Icke? <laughs> and then if you had to rank them from what you think are the, you know, the best to worst, if you could, uh, I, that would be oh, interesting. I, you know, I, I really, um, how shall I say this? I have really nothing negative to say about anybody. And um, because I, I think if somebody is basically on, on my team, on my, in my army, let's say, we're fighting for our lives against an enemy, and I'm in the foxhole, and the enemy's shooting bullets above my head, and somebody jumps in the hole, he says, hi, I'm here to help you out. I don't say, well, now, how do you feel about this, and how do you feel about that? I don't like your religion. Well, how do you feel about that? You know, do you like Donald Trump? Oh, that's not my position. No, no, I'm just glad to see them there, right? <laughs> so I try my hardest not to... Uh, uh, if I may have reservations about certain things that they think or do or say, I try and keep it to myself as long as I feel that they're basically on, on my side. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you ask me how I feel about people, uh, and having said that, doesn't mean I have negative things about any of these guys. But I can tell you that uh, it's pretty easy to find fault with everybody. I look at some of the stuff I have written and said over the years, and I'm thinking, hmm, I don't think I believe that anymore, you know? It's... Uh, we all make mistakes and we all are at various stages of our enlightenment. So I'd like to give people as much leeway as possible. Um, all of the names that you have mentioned are doing, I think, yeoman service to awaken people as to the basic truth of what's going on in the world. And on that basis, I would uh, support them all. That's a great answer. Um, I guess the last question that I have for you is what's your message to the American people right now in 2020? And how do you see this all ending uh, for America and humanity? Well, I see it ending depending on whether or not people follow my message. Let's switch those around. My message, if it's followed, will determine how it ends. If it's not followed, that will determine how it's all going to end. So it's not how I see it ending, because I can see it ending in one of two ways. We'll start with the uh, 
the really unhappy ending. If we do nothing to reverse the trend that's going on right now, we're through. And when I say we're through, what I mean is our liberties are gone, completely gone. We'll be like little, it'd be like living in the army. All of society will be militarized in the sense that you no longer have any private property. You do what you're told. You have rank depending upon your position in the system and how you climb up the ladder of rank and um, benefits is determined by your obedience to higher authority, somewhat on your, on your skills, but mostly obedience. And if you step out of line, uh, you're punished severely. And uh, very few people step out of line. And it's not the kind of a society that anybody wants to live under. Because you, it's just like, a, it's a master-slave relationship. It's, it's, it's worse than the military. Because in the military, theoretically, you have a foreign enemy or some other enemy that's external to your group. But in the kind of a system I'm thinking about, the, there is no such external enemy. It's, it's you. It's you and your family and your friends. It's, it's, you can't point outside. It's, it's you. In other words, you are viewed as a traitor if you don't uh, oblige to the dictates of your leaders, you are a traitor. And probably you would be shot, exterminated in some way. Um, there was no need for money because uh, you get your health care, you get your barracks, you get your living quarters, you get your food, you get everything, you get a haircut, uh, you get everything you need, maybe a little extra spending money or coupons or social credit scores on your... Um, chip in your hand so you could go down to the uh, px and maybe get a candy bar if you're a good boy and girl but if you're not a good boy and a good good girl and you're you're questioning authority you may even have trouble buying paying your rent or buying food in the grocery store or buying a gallon of gas if you had a car or a motor scooter or something it's that kind of a thing we're heading into. And, and this is not anything I'm making up. It, it shouldn't even sound bizarre to most people because our enemies are talking about these things that I'm mentioning. They're talking about this is going to be good, isn't it? This is, a, this is the way we're going to make everybody happy. This is the way we're going to get rid of all dissidents in society and everybody will be one big happy family. Nobody will be quarreling with one another. What they don't say, of course, is that they will be underneath, but they won't dare let it out. They will pretend like they're all happy because if they don't pretend, they're through. And so that's, that's the, uh, I could go on. There are even worse case scenarios than that, but uh, that's where we're headed if we don't change anything. Now, my message is, back to that part, we better not let that happen. Hmm. It's not... It, it, no, there's, there's no choice. There's, there's no option. We must not let that happen. And how do we not let it happen? Honest answer is, I don't know. It's far advanced. But I do know that what the first step is, no matter what the strategy is, I know what the first step is, that we've got to have a lot more people aware of the things that we're talking about. So even though they may not participate in bringing about change, they won't they won't stand in the way. As Max Egan says it so well in one of his documentaries, he said, 
folks. He likes the word folks. Uh, if we don't change things, we're going to be swept along by the sleeping masses into slavery. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's about it. It's not, it's the sleeping masses. It's those people walking up and down the streets now saying, put your mask on. You know, it's, it's those people that really believe that what they're being told is true. They will look at you and me who, who are trying to save their liberty and their freedom and their way of life. They will look at us as though we're criminals, that we're evil people. Mm-hmm. It happens in every communist regime that takes, that's, succeeds in coming to power. They're always the, the death squads. They're always the people's courts. The chanting mob is out there, kill him, kill him. That capitalist landowner there, he was the reason we were hungry. He was the reason we had revolution. That person had a lot of money over there. He was a rich son of a gun. And I didn't like him anyway. Kill him. And this is, uh, this is how it works. Mm. So uh, we need large groups of people, even though they're not going to be in the vanguard of bringing about reform, they, we must not let them sweep us into slavery. Mm. So our first two goals are one is to be absolutely firm on what we believe and what we want to build in the world, what kind of society we want and why. And that's why we have this thing called the creed of freedom in our movement. We have to be clear that we don't replace the present tyranny with one just as bad if we should win. That's the story of history. We don't want to do that. So after we've got that clear, now we need what we used to call project outreach. We've got to communicate the basic concept to large numbers of people who necessarily won't be in the the vanguard, but they're waiting for us to tell them something that rings true to them. They're good people. They know it in their hearts that something is wrong. Mm. And when you ring the bell, they'll recognize that was a genuine bell. That wasn't a recording. That was a real bell of truth. And they'll be there. And we, as one family of humanity, we can somehow overcome this obstacle. I know one thing, even though I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but if there are enough people who are filled with the truth and filled with righteous indignation, they will not succeed. Mm. I appreciate your time. You're one of the most uh, genuine people I've ever spoken to. And I, if I could sneak in one more quick question, because I know history repeats itself. Reading history, there's been a lot of crazy stuff. Is this the craziest year in America you've ever witnessed or the most power the, you know, Marxist type people have gotten, or has it been crazier in the past? No, this tops the cake right now for me, my lifespan. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to post this on on my social media and check out Red Red Pill University and and you could just plug your websites real quick and then we'll. Well, yeah, redpilluniversity.org is is really a good place to start. But don't forget, I'm glad you brought this up. We have an event coming up. It's Red Pill Expo Mm. and it's coming right up. It's just a few weeks away, uh, October 10 and 11. And I hope you're sitting down for it because the location of this event is Jekyll Island. Oh, now, wow. For those of you who don't know why that's significant, it's because you haven't spent much time with my book. My poor little book is called The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. 
And the reason we call it that is because that on Jekyll Island is where the Federal Reserve was conceived in secret back in 1910. So we're going there and so not to honor or revere these people, but to sort of let it be known historically that we're here now and we're gonna change things. So the first place we're starting is on Jekyll Island and people are tired of being locked up and, and uh, quarantined in their homes and being told they can't do this, they can't do that, can't do this. And they're flocking. I mean, I, I can see the, the tickets coming in right now. People are buying tickets as we speak. They want to go. They're being there and uh, they're going to be there. And we already know that uh, on Georgia, the governor of Georgia is one of the few governors that says, look, I don't, I don't believe all of this stuff about coronavirus and we're not going to enforce all this nonsense. Mm. And so even though they're required to put up signs there on the island, I mean, the island and the, the the uh, convention center and the hotels and everything. They say, you, you know, you must wear a mask and all that. On the island, it, the island is owned by the state of Georgia, which means the Georgia police uh, are responsible for law enforcement on the island. And uh, I've checked around there and I've found out that the police have no interest in enforcing these stupid, uh, uh, what's, what's the word? I got to clean it up a little bit. These, um, non uh, non-productive regulations let's put it that way mm -hmm. so uh, it's a good place to have our event so look us up redpillexpo.org if you can't make it of course we know a lot of people can't most people can't make it we have a we're going to have a, a really hot ball live stream that you can participate so one way or the other please be sure to attend the red pill expo amazing thank you so much again for your time we appreciate it and uh you know, I look forward to posting this so everyone can see it. Okay, thank you. Yep. All right. All right. Bye bye. Pray to God, pray to God. Yeah. Pray to God, pray to God.